I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not uh, as simple you know, I, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many you know, more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. Happy New Year. Hello and welcome back to the podcast that is always up to speed with Formula One here on the Overtime Media Network. You have Mark Hamilton and Mark Daly. Uh, Welcome to the first episode of Calendar 2021, I think. And it probably goes without saying that we all hope that this will be a much better year than maybe (laughs) what we'd experienced in in Calendar 2020. And if F1 uh, has anything to say about it, we have an absolutely action-packed calendar to look forward to. And we'll probably get into it next week, but I think there may already be a little bit of disruption coming. But like I said, our first podcast since Christmas, our first podcast of the new year. To my dear co-host, how was the... How was the holidays? How, how was time spent with family? The the, the last uh, 10 days, two weeks has been absolutely wonderful. I hope everybody else had a, a good holiday season wherever they are. And I was just, I have to, I'm just chuckling to myself here, Mark, as, I, as we're about to kick the show off, because we're going to do the one thing that nobody in 2021 wants to do and talk about 2020. <laughs> you know, we're, we're, <laughs> we're, we're in a kind of a, in a funny kind of a time year. You know, there's still plenty of news considering uh, what, what, what's going on in Formula One. But we'd be, I think, uh, a little bit remiss. We'd be, uh, you know, we'd be a little bit, I'd say, almost derelict in duty if we didn't go back and address some of the very important moments over the last uh, year in 2020. And it was funny, too. I was thinking that uh, even though nothing has really changed since January 1st, what the new year means is new opportunities, new beginnings and new hope. And like we were talking uh, before we actually went on the air that Hopefully, once we power through the next uh, month, maybe six weeks, uh, through the darkest point of the winter here, that we might truly start seeing some light at the end of the tunnel. But until then, we do have, um, you know, and my brother, uh, just to sort of digress a little bit, uh, he was saying, we were talking about this over the holiday. And it was funny, we thought, well, the discussion was that when it comes to something like uh, pro sports and all those sorts of things, and whether or not they're really important or not in our lives... That the last year, even though that there were so many other things going on, that uh, that the sports that were able up to to, to get up and uh, running, you know, they did prove that they're worth because they were a ray of hope, a ray of distraction, whatever you want to call it. And I think that uh, it gave uh, people something to take their mind off that that the heavier and darker and uh, very very important issues and uh, things that have been going on in the rest of our lives. So yeah, I think I completely agree. Yeah, I, I think that uh, just from, from that point alone, that was one of the things that uh, we should talk about, but we wanted to go down. This is like basically our top 10 of 2020 uh, list. And we have a whole bunch. Some of them are going to be kind of lead into another ones and other ones, you know, they can kind of fit in there anywhere. But uh, I think the top two that we have in our list, well, I think they're, they're 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 both equally important, but uh, in in different ways. So I think we're going to kick it off, Mark. And we should have done like a little bit of uh, we should have had a drum roll or some sort of custom audio <laughs> for the, the, the show. 
But I think that our very first, uh, or number one on our top 10 list was the fact that in 2020, we actually had a season at all, even though it was delayed, what was it, three and a half months, four months, whatever it was, by the time we got up and running at the beginning of July, the wait was definitely worth it. Yeah, I I completely agree. Just to kind of echo your comments, you know, I I think for a lot of people in calendar 2020, I I really think that the hardest part was probably that March, April, May, June period. And I think for so many people, professional sports racing, it just just becomes part of your life and as part of your routine and your condition to look for scores and watch sports. And when all of a sudden it just all evaporates and you don't know when it's coming back, I think that was very alarming for a lot of people like myself who depends on sports for that escapism, for that for that kind of cultural uh, attachment to something beyond the four walls of your own home. And and I, I think when sports did resume, even though obviously we saw an escalation in COVID cases and the crisis really exploded again with the second wave in the fall and the winter, I think there was a degree of normalcy because we were able to see sports and we were able to talk about sports. And at the end of the day, nothing is more important than saving lives and the health and well-being of our health systems. But I think as a society, we need these distractions and these distractions yeah. are good. So it was really, really, really great when Formula One did return. The the one thing before we jump into this, and I, I ask only because I was listening to the Checkered Flag podcast the other day, and they had a really great kind of segment to kick off their 2020 top 10. Um, but are you familiar with, and I'm sure you are, but every single year, Formula One issues kind of a, a DVD, a Blu-ray, which is kind of a, a review of the calendar. And they are notorious for giving these the crappiest possible titles. Um, <laughs> and if you look back in, in 2013, the title was Formula One 2013. Who can stop him? Obviously, a, a reference at that point to Vettel. Red Bull, yeah. 2014, the title of the DVD was It Was Fair. In 2015, the title was that's what champions do. And then in 2016, <laughs> and this is hilarious, in 2016, the title of the F1 Blu-ray box set that recaptured the entire season was, they did their best. <laughs> so I ask you, and I'm going to put you on the spot, if you were to issue um, or if you were producing the 2020 F1 official Blu-ray box set, what would you title it? Oh boy, yeah, you really are putting me on the spot. I don't know if I can come up with something as equally crap as those other ones. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh boy, uh, what, what can we do? Twenty twenty. Yeah, we got to come up with something memorable here. Twenty twenty. Thank God it's over. <laughs> <laughs> I think that would be good. I think that would be very, very, very good. Yeah. I, I'll stick with that one. You know what? I'll send a tweet to the Formula One media group and make sure that they get that on the box. Because there we go. Obviously, the fourth graders that they depend on to come up with these things aren't doing much better. So, yeah. And, and you know, I think that's a great segue. And, and I think, obviously, if we're going to review the 2020 season and kind of look at some of the top 10 moments, I think it really goes back to Australia. And and I think to kind of set the scene, by the time the Formula One circus had landed in Melbourne, uh, the NHL in North America was shut down. The NBA had already suspended its season. And I think there was a lot of hesitation about the fact that they even flew out there. And, you know, I I'll open with a quote from Lewis Hamilton at the press availability on the Thursday. But he says, you know, and I quote, cash is king. The fact is we are here. Um, I hope the fans take precautions. Walking through the pits today, it was as normal as ever. And he went on to comment about the fact that at that point, the NBA had suspended their season. Uh, the NHL suspended their season. The premier soccer leagues in Europe had suspended their seasons. Yet here we were in Melbourne, ready to race on the Thursday. And 
Thursday night, Andrew Benson, reporting for the BBC, put out a story that said the race was going to be canceled. F1 itself didn't actually cancel the race until the Friday morning, almost an hour before the first practice. Um, we learned later that a lot of the drivers, including Sebastian Vettel and Kimi Raikkonen, had already flown out by the time that the race was actually canceled. And we also learned that even if Formula One and the FIA were going to go ahead with this race, there were only three teams in Red Bull and AlphaTauri and Racing Point that were even willing to contest at that point. But in hindsight, it's, it's remarkable to think that we went to Australia knowing that the Chinese Grand Prix had already been postponed, that we set up the teams that assembled the cars, and it wasn't until Friday morning, an hour before free practice, that they finally canceled that race. And you look back and we forget all of this because the year has been so busy, but that kind of put the lead, put the entire sport on pause. And at that point, I don't think we had any idea what the calendar was going to look like or whether there was going to be a calendar at all. Well, that's right. It, it sort of really set up this sort of cascading or snowballing effect of uh, the, these, these cancellations and these postponements. And it really, we went into this really, really bizarre time. I mean, that, that point in March when everything was getting canceled, like sporting events, and then people were like, countries around the world were going into the lockdown, was really a seminal moment. I mean, just across like uh, humanity, right? And it, it went into that really bizarre second half of the spring, in, into April, into May, and then into the beginning of summer in June. But at least by the end of May, there was some really serious rumblings that this thing is going to get up and running, that they're targeting the beginning of July. And we initially had this sort of this, this initial batch of races that it looked like something was going to happen up till the traditional summer break at the, uh, the at the end of July, beginning of August with with Hungary, and then it was just going to be okay. Well, what what's going to happen after that? And we kind of had these sort of modules of the season that kind of. They, they kind of came together at different points and we kind of leapfrogged a little bit all over the place. And I, I have to give it to them that the way that they managed to get it going and the way that they, uh, that they managed to get this sort of this, the, the F1 bubble, this little biosphere that they operated in. And I think I can't remember what, how many tests they did in total, but I think they, they had, what was it, uh, several dozen test positive cases. I mean, the most notable ones, of course, were Sergio Perez and Lewis Hamilton. I mean, that, that's just obvious. And Lance, can't forget about Lance yep, Stroll. Yep. I mean, the three drivers, and then you had a number of team personnel testing positive for COVID, and then ancillary personnel or people that work at the facilities and tracks like that. But I think that the test positive rate was something one in a thousand. I think that's what it uh, turned out to be. So, and the the tens or hundreds of thousands or however many tests that they did, I think it's phenomenal that uh, first of all they're able to come up with the framework, they're able to operate in it, and despite the the several high profile cases, that uh, ultimately it worked uh, very well. And um, I, I'm still kind of sitting here today a little bit in disbelief that number one they actually were able to pull it together, and they able able to pull it off, and we actually she had a pretty entertaining season. I mean, you can look at the points total. And I mean, a lot of people just remember the Lewis won, Mercedes won again. But I mean, there were some very entertaining races in there. So all in all, I think it's, it sets up nicely for next year. I know that there's some questions right now surrounding Australia for March, uh, just to the, the COVID situation down there. And the fact that, uh, you know, they got to start uh, putting together this uh, temporary circuit, which is uh, obviously different than some of these uh, replacement tracks that we saw last year, like Mugello and Portimao, Imola, tracks that we, uh, or uh, Nürburgring, another one that we haven't seen or we haven't seen uh, for a very long time. 
the the difference with Melbourne is being a, a temporary circuit is that it's not up and running and ready to go where some of these other races or venues were like, okay, you want to come race here? We just need X number of weeks to get up and running, whereas Melbourne needs months. So it would be a shame at this point uh, that uh, if, if it got cancelled, but, you know, if it does, hopefully it's a postponement. But, um, you know, we're, we're on track for another epic season and they've proven that the, the F1 bubble can work. And I hope that, uh, that, that uh, well, I mean, we're going to be living with COVID for a while. We're going to be living with the, the, the F1 bubble for a while. So we hope that, uh, that, that the delay, if there is one to the start of the season, isn't longer than, than that initial race. But we'll see. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I think that's a great recap. And I think you touched on, you know, as dark as that period was in March and April, May and June, you know, the outcome was that to your point, we, we did get to see some, some good races. We got to see some fun races and ultimately we got to see some tracks that maybe we haven't seen in a while, or maybe we've never seen on an F1 calendar and Imola Mugello, Portimao, Nürburgring. And we went back to Turkey for the first time in 2011. And, yep. you know, 2011 was, a was an interesting race. And this one was equally as much partly because of the surf which we'll probably talk about a, a little bit later <laughs> on. But uh, ultimately, you know, again, you know, you and I have both credited Liberty for putting together a really substantial calendar and putting together a championship that I don't believe warrants an asterisk. So yep. all things considered, I, I think we're in a good place. And whether Australia happens or not, I think Bahrain is guaranteed. So we are going to see Formula One racing in, in March. And I, I think that's that's a total lock at this point. Yeah, and that's uh, that. That's a great thing to be able to to look forward to. So let's uh, kick off the next part of the conversation here. We might have to bridge it uh, with the, the 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 break in between. But uh, the the other big thing was Lewis's seventh world championship, uh, equaling the immortal Michael Schumacher. And you know, I mean, Lewis was obviously before that with uh, all the records he held and the six world titles was already in that elite pantheon of uh, Formula One. Uh, legends but uh, equaling that seventh world title of Michael Schumacher's is just uh, on another level right it is just uh, it 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 was one of those records i think so many people thought that once you know michael won that final world title i mean it was obvious after he left ferrari went to mercedes that latter part of his career that it just you know, more world titles weren't going to be coming at that point. But it just seemed that all those Schumacher uh, records that he set in those glory years with the with the Ferrari and even those first couple world championships with uh, Benetton in the 1990s, it just seemed, it, it had that feel that they were going to stand for a long, long time. And I, I think it's a real testament to Lewis Hamilton and uh, to Mercedes to what they've done since 2014 is uh, absolutely impressive. So that that is our number two. And uh, I, I think that, uh, you know, had it not been for COVID uh, and the, the whole rejigging of this, uh, the, the entire season, obviously uh, the, Lewis and what he accomplished this year would have been our natural number one pick for 2020. And I really don't have a lot to add to this one. You know, we, we've talked obviously about Lewis and his successes, uh, at length over the last couple of months. I just, I think in the historical rear view mirror of Formula One, I think 2021 will probably eclipse 2020 because I think everything is lining up for another Mercedes constructors and driver's title. And I don't think there is any reason whatsoever to doubt that Hamilton will secure championship number eight. And ultimately, I think that's the one that will be the most important in the rearview mirror of uh, kind of the Formula One historical championship. So I think it was great. Uh, he had an incredible season. He was incredibly reliable. He didn't have a single retirement. He missed one race to your earlier point because unfortunately he, he had COVID um, towards the end of the season. 
season. But ultimately, he was an absolute rock star. He put in reliable races. And, you know, we'll talk about the British GP in a couple of minutes, but I don't really have a lot to add. I think the only thing is that this seventh title will be a short-term celebration because I think there's every reason to think he'll win another title in 2021. Yeah, absolutely. And and I've said this on the show probably now for the past. Well, I think I've probably said it as every season since I started the podcast until proven otherwise. I am really, really hesitant to bet against Mercedes and especially bet against Lewis Hamilton on, um, you know, yeah. on, on a regular basis. I mean, we've seen some some little hiccups here and there, especially like the, the, the British Grand Prix, where we've seen that they've had some issues, but they're, they're quickly, uh, you know, figured out and sorted out. And just over the longer stretch, over the course of an entire season, because nobody, not even Mercedes, is going to have a perfect season. I mean, they, they come pretty close to it. But the thing is that over the course of 20 races, 21 races, 23 races, whatever the, the, the calendar calls for, that uh, it, it just seems, it almost seems foolish in my mind to, to, to bet against those guys at, uh, at any yeah. given time. Yeah. I, I completely agree. Completely agree. All right. Well, I think that's a good place uh, to leave it uh, for the first two on our top 10 countdown uh, for 2020. So we're going to take a quick break here on the Overtime Media Network. So don't go away. We'll be back in just a moment. Passion, drive, and patience. The formula for winning championships is also what keeps your ride or die alive. eBay Motors has everything you need to maintain your vehicle and level it up to peak performance. Superchargers, roof racks, exhaust kits, LED headlights, and more. Whether you're into speed, power, or style, eBay Motors has you covered. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you'll always find exactly what you're looking for. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, your part is guaranteed to fit your ride every time or your money back. Because with eBay Motors, you're burning rubber, not cash. With all the parts you need at the prices you want, it's easy to make your car the MVP and bring home huge wins. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is not as simple as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened up so many more doors. The show is called The The Deal. Deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. All right. Well, welcome back to the podcast. It is always up to speed with Formula One. Mark and Mark here counting down the top 10 moments of 2020 here on the podcast. And also for those of you watching on the YouTube uh, channel. So we went through in the first segment, uh, obviously the two big ones. A, or sorry, one uh, that we had a season at all what with the, the, the COVID landscape we've all been living with uh, for the past year or so. And then number two was uh, Lewis and uh, his uh, seventh world championship and all the records that he broke and tied and set and all those things last year. So number three is actually a bit of a compilation of a, a couple of different points, bullet points that you and I had, uh, Mark, when we were talking about putting this show together over the past uh, couple of days. Um, and I, I've, I've condensed it down into the rise of Racing Point slash Aston Martin, because uh, 
Boy, I mean, if, if the first segment took, uh, you know, the, the, the first two uh, points, there is a lot to unpack about Racing Point over the, the, the last calendar year. I mean, they, they, they turned a lot of heads turning up to Barcelona with a Pinka Mercedes with the RP20. Um, obviously there was a lot of, uh, I mean, there was, there, there, there's a natural connection there because they have the, the, the Mercedes power unit. And then, you know, there was a lot of, uh, you know, a, a lot of discussion about that, even though that, uh, Otmar Safnauer, the team principal admitted that, uh, they, they borrowed heavily from the W10 design concepts from the 2019, uh, Mercedes car. And, and that initially they had a lot of setbacks before they figured out the aero package and got the car to work. And then of course this led into these roll protests uh, from Renault through the, uh, you know, the, the the opening portion of the year, this investigation, ultimately the fine and the points deduction. But that not being, you know, like not just taking that into account, I mean, they still finished very well in the Constructors' Championship. They won a race at the end and those things were coming. I mean, they, they were found, of course, uh, like I said, to uh, be in violation uh, because, uh, you know, the, the, the brake duct issue, ultimately that was sorted out. But they did design a good car. And the thing is that whenever somebody comes up with a good concept in, in Formula One, everybody else t- seems to, co- you know, copy that uh, concept. So I can see the, you know, why they borrowed heavily from the design, uh, like the aero design and, and, and concepts that they had on the W10. But I mean, they, I think that they did a good job apart from the cheating which they got busted for <laughs> but a lot of the things like you know like turkey the way that lance and sergio ran off and they you know they should have i mean the thing is lewis just drove a master class of the race on that uh, on that particular day on that very slippery track but i mean there were good things coming throughout the year it just it seemed that it was going to happen for them sooner or later before bahrain too yeah, I think 2021 is potentially going to be a, and, and you know, you could argue that in some ways, 2020 was a bit of a, a breakthrough season for this team. Obviously yeah. they, they won a race and Lance had a couple of stroll or a couple of strolls. <laughs> Lance had a couple of podiums. Uh, he had a pole, which I, I think was epic considering the conditions in Turkey on that day. And I, I think one of the BBC race commenters had referenced the Turkey trap at or track as slippy McSlip face during the course of the race weekend. So sounds about uh, right. Obviously, that wasn't to be uh, dis- disregarded, but I-, I think this team is obviously on the verge of doing big things. And, you know, prior to the Lance Stroll Consortium, it was a small operation based at Silverstone with about 400 people working in the factory and with the team. Um, obviously, since the Stroll Consortium's moved in, the headcount at the factory's almost doubled. Um, they're close to finishing the construction of a new factory on site. Um, subsequent to his purchase of the uh uh, Force India team, uh, Lawrence Stroll has obviously made a very significant investment in the Aston Martin road cars division as well, of which he now owns 25%. And Total Wolf has subsequently invested. And since 2017, Mercedes-Benz themselves have been incrementally um, investing as well in that team. Um, next year, we, we get to abandon Racing Point as a name. And, and I, I always thought that Racing Point was something of a, a holdover, a temporary name. It never, it never logically made sense as a long-term marketing exercise no. but it's uh, grown but on me incre- to be honest what's that it's grown on me a little bit i i have to admit. really yes it has yeah 
So, you know, I think one of the things that really did frustrate me was early on, I wanted to get some Racing Point merchandise. You know, I've been to a couple of races, you know, I wanted to support a Canadian-based team with a Canadian-based driver, um, but they always had very, very little, like maybe a hoodie, maybe a t-shirt. And I always thought that they're probably not producing a ton of, ton of merchandise because they don't plan to kind of retain this brand long-term. Um, but yeah, and I also like the pink, but you know, we saw a couple of days ago that uh, they've officially rebranded as the Aston Martin Works Formula One team on Twitter, on social media media. They've said goodbye to the Racing Point Pink. We'll probably learn more about who their principal sponsors are over the next couple of weeks and months, but I think I'm incredibly excited to see what they can do as a works team. And let's just be very clear to the listeners out there that the integration between Aston Martin as a road car division and Mercedes as a road car division was pretty substantial. Uh, Mercedes now feeds engines and electrical systems to Aston Martin for the road cars. And, and obviously we're probably going to see a similar uh, relationship in the, the Formula One division, but I'm, I'm incredibly excited for 2021. And hopefully if they can build a little bit more, a little bit more reliability into that package, you know, we, we talked a little bit about Hulkenberg's disappointing, no starts um, yeah. in Britain earlier in the season and, and some of the other issues, but I'm incredibly excited to see what can happen. But that said, I, I keep having to recalibrate my expectations because I keep thinking we're going to go into 2021 with an improved car and improved package rebranding and the same drivers, but it's going to be a totally different driver lineup because Lance is returning, obviously, but we're going to bring in Sebastian Vettel, who's coming off the worst season of his career. So 2021 could be a very, very, very interesting season. And I think if you ask anyone, their expectation is third place in the Constructors' Championship. Yeah, you know it's fascinating. I mean, uh, you, you touched on it nicely just there. Just uh, you know, Lan- or sorry, Lawrence Stroll and his uh, consortium coming in in 2018, and there was not much of a pulse left in that body when they came in in the middle of that year. I mean, that that team was literally on its uh, final couple of breaths when they came in there. And it was interesting, too, because when they came back from the summer break, I mean, the injection of cash they just put into that team initially, I mean, we saw almost an immediate improvement in the cars. I mean, it didn't obviously vault them up to uh, contend for podiums, but I mean, it it did make a difference right off the bat. But, you know, fast forward just a couple of years later, and here's a team that finishes fourth in world championship in the constructors, only seven points behind McLaren. And had they not had that, uh, you know, that penalty applied to them, a big fine midway through the season that that would have been a lock they would have been obviously much higher up in the constructors championship they would have not have been fourth it just would have been at that point how much closer to red bull would they have been i mean i think they had 195 points mclaren had just i think 202 203 whatever it was so very very impressive but it um, like you say i mean uh, you have this uh, you know lawrence uh, coming in there and considering how successful he is in his other businesses this yeah. is just not yeah. a vanity project for him the amount of money that he's invested in the, in the in the parent company and in the formula 1 team i mean this is hundreds of millions of pounds or dollars whichever way you shake it it's a lot of money they're not just there just to, you know just to get their faces on tv and things like that. They're there to race. And I, I think it's an exciting time um, to, to see where this team is going to, to, to go. I mean, obviously, they've had some delays in the new factory and whatnot. But I think that there's a, a very, very uh, positive vibe around this team at the moment. And it's going to be one to watch uh, next year. And I think that the way that this season finished up, well, with uh, McLaren just uh, beating them to uh, third in the championship and the way that they've revived their their, their fortunes is another great storyline to go into and, and follow all throughout uh, 2021. Because 
as impressive as uh, Racing Point has been, the way that they've uh, you know revived themselves and, and and gotten to a point that they've never previously been, is also the fairly quick turnaround that uh, that their rivals in McLaren have been as well. So that, that like I say, it's going to be fascinating. It's going to be fun to watch in twenty twenty one. I would just, I'll add one thing as well. And, and I'm not doing this because I'm a, a homer because I'm a Canadian, but <laughs> I, I think oftentimes, especially in the UK and especially when a formula one team enters into administration, yep. even if somebody comes along and offers up a sum of money, rarely does that team ever, or that company or that enterprise really ever resume its identity. I'll, I'll be very honest. When a company enters into administration, somebody comes along and they buys them and they strip them for parts. They gut costs, they gut all of the resources, and they just sell it off for spare parts. But I think Lawrence deserves all the credit in the world because he he bought this team and he, to your point, has invested hundreds and hundreds of millions of pounds, euros, dollars into improving it and increasing headcount and increasing resources. He deserves all the credit in the world because for all we know, if if the Mazapan family had bought this team, it could have been stripped for parts. It could have been run into the ground. I think he deserves the credit for saving the jobs, for creating new jobs and and just kind of reinforcing um, how how credible and how sustainable this sport is if the teams are backed by the right type of people. So that's just absolutely. kind of my last comment there. But I think he deserves all the credit in the world for what he's done. Well, absolutely. And if you look uh, just at the end of the uh, the Ecclestone era, just look at a couple of teams that disappeared there, like Manor Racing and, and totally. Caterham. I mean, remember that crowdfunding thing that Caterham did, what was in 2014, 2013, yeah. whatever it was? You know, to get them to the last couple of races that uh, I I, I, th- I think I put in like five or 10 pounds or something uh-huh. like that. So I, I've got the little uh, refuel caterum that thing. I thought it was kind of a cool thing to do. But uh, anyways, that's awesome. All right. Well, let's uh, go into uh, number four before we hit the next break. And we've already touched on it a couple of times. So one of the, the most uh, memorable wins uh, this year was uh, Lewis's win at the British Grand Prix. So Mark, take it away. I know you, you've been bursting to talk about this one. <laughs> You know, bursting to talk about it, but I had to go back and review the race because it's funny because even though the entire Formula One season happened in the last six months, it was so condensed and so compressed that I forgot and unfortunately quite a lot of it. And I think it's kind of embarrassing that I forgot so much of this race. So for starters, you know what? Lewis has been an absolute monster at Silverstone, Um, including this race. He's won there seven times. I think he's qualified on pole six or seven times. Um, It's it's his home race. I've been there. I've seen him race in front of that crowd. And there's probably... As far as the F1 calendar is concerned, there's probably no equivalent spectacle in terms of energy and atmosphere. So right away, it was it was very surreal to watch him race at Silverstone with the stands empty. So right away, yeah. that the atmosphere was gone a little bit. But that said, you know what? Um, we go into the first of two races at Silverstone. He qualifies on pole. Bottas was second. Max was third. Um, and it looked and felt like a, a largely conventional race for the first probably two acts and it was really in the final acts where things started going a little bit haywire and you know Bates and and we saw on the broadcast began reporting that he was having visibility issues due to vibrations in the car and it wasn't necessarily clear what that was ultimately he had a tire failure and he limped back to the pits um two laps to go signs had a tire failure uh the Red Bull team brought in Verstappen preemptively because they feared that he could potentially also have a tire issue and I think there's a lot of 
speculation at this point, like what is causing these tire issues? Why are these graining issues happening now? The track was clear, it was dry, it wasn't a particularly hot race, but all of a sudden with basically a lap race, lap left, uh, the Mercedes team had cautioned Hamilton that, hey, look, understand, because I don't think at that time Hamilton was as aware of what was happening around him in terms of the tire failures as we were watching at home. Because I think sometimes the teams are very mm-hmm. cautious about what information they provide to their drivers. If it's information that's not going to be useful and strategic in helping them win a race or make decisions that will lead to a race, I think they sometimes try to put them in a bubble and isolate. So I don't know how much information Hamilton knew at that point. He probably knew that Bottas had a tire failure. He may not have known about signs. So the team towards the very end of the race came on and they said, hey, look, you know what? You need to be very, very, very careful with those tires for the balance of this race. And at this point, there was about a lap, maybe a lap and a half left Um, with eight corners left, or I think on the eighth corner of the final lap, Hamilton himself suffered a tire failure, um, almost a complete um, explosion of that front left tire. At that point, he was about 30 seconds in front of Max. And the only reason the gap was so big was because the Red Bull team had preemptively brought Max in, hoping that they could avoid a potential tire failure that could have cost them a podium. So we, we, we are now in this position, and it was one of the most short of Italy, which we'll, I think we'll probably talk about. It was one of the most thrilling, compelling finishes to a race that season because you have Hamilton who had a 30-second lead, but he's now racing on three tires. And you have Max, one of the one of the most vicious racers on the circuit who can absolutely make up time like no other racer, chasing him down corner after corner after corner. And all you could do is sit there stunned watching Hamilton literally limp home <laughs> while you have Max chasing him down on fresh tires. And ultimately, Hamilton wins. He he wins by six seconds, but Max was able to take 24 seconds out of that lead in the last half, last two-thirds of a lap. And obviously, Hamilton ends up winning. It was his 87th race win, his seventh win in Britain, and his third straight win of the season. Uh, but wow, what a what a close to that race. It was crazy. And if that uh, if that tire failure, uh, you know, uh, it, was, it wasn't a puncture. It was just a complete disintegration of the tires totally. that came apart there. If it happened one quarter, corner sooner then obviously max wins that race it was because uh, i remember it too because up until that point it wasn't really the most exciting race you know i, I seem to remember yeah, it was a procession very much yeah, a procession to that it, point it was and the, the funny thing is too like even though that it was pretty close to the the, the time of year that uh, we see the, the 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 british grand prix um, under normal circumstances it wasn't really a situation that we've really seen before with those sort of issues with tire wear and graining and stuff like that. So it was very, very bizarre, but it was an exciting, exciting finish. And it really sort of set things up very interesting for for the week after, for the 70th anniversary uh, Grand Prix, because I have to admit that once the, the calendar, uh, calendar got finalized and we were going to have like these double headers at uh, certain racetracks like uh, at Austria at the Red Bull Ring at Silverstone and then at uh, in Bahrain uh, well of course it's like here you have the the t- uh, traditional uh, track and then the outer track the, the sort of oval one which we saw yeah. at the end of the season they all worked and uh, you know I have to be honest with the the two races we saw at uh, Silverstone and uh, and in Austria, two weeks w- w- was enough. But after that first uh, race at Silverstone, with Lewis, uh, you know, crawling across the the uh, you know the the, the finish line, it kind of really set up a lot of questions uh, for for the week uh, thereafter. But it was very funny because had that happened in a normal year, you know, that place just would have gone bananas by the time uh, Lewis had crossed start finish to take that uh, checkered flag. I mean, especially if Max was right on his 
his uh, gearbox like he was at the end, I mean, the place would have uh, erupted. So, I mean, it was an epic win, unfortunately, in front of, uh, you know, an empty, uh, you know, an uh, empty grandstands around uh, the, yeah. the, the, the track, but it is I was what it at, is. I was at Silverstone in 2018 when he uh, won pole in qualifying on the Saturday. And when when his time went up on the scoreboards around the track and 120, 125,000 people that were present <laughs> saw that, it was, you could feel it in the ground. It wasn't just the noise, but you could feel it in the ground where people were stomping and cheering and jumping up and down. Cool. But yeah, I think that's the only thing that could have made that better is if people were able to witness it in, in person. Um, but, uh, but yeah, ultimately it was a fantastic race. And like you said, it teed up the 70th um, Grand Prix, which followed the, the, the race weekend after. Absolutely. All right. Well, time for another break here on the show. And when we come back, we're going to talk about something that we typically don't talk about on our top 10 uh, countdown. So you want to stick around for that. So don't go away. We'll be back in just a moment. All right. Well, welcome back to the show. It's Mark and Mark here counting down our top 10 moments from the 2020 Formula One World Championship. We've uh, been through one to four and we're now getting, well, we're halfway there. And as I hinted at uh, before the break, we're going to talk now about something that typically is not a big issue. But uh, one of the things, uh, one of our moments from this year is uh, the Mercedes mistakes. And uh, that uh, was costly in a couple of races. Uh, one was at Mon- and then also in Russia when uh, Lewis was uh, penalized for the, uh, the, the the practice starts outside of the allowed area. The other one was uh, in Monza when he came in and uh, into the pits when the pit lane was closed. That one was, uh, th- that was interesting. That was, I think, more a little bit of uh, a reaction, a reaction call and just a bit of bad timing. But these sorts of things and also that uh, that botched tire stop at, uh, at Bahrain with uh, George Russell uh, filling in, those sorts of things were very, very un-Mercedes-like. I mean, like we said, we, we've seen some, you know, where they've had issues at certain races and they sort of over, over the years they're, they're not immune from it nobody is but the thing is they're, they're typically far and few between so to see them th- these things pop up at several times throughout the 2020 season was very very un-Mercedes like and almost I would, would dare to say unprecedented I agree and I think if we flash back to 2019 we we've seen Mercedes make mistakes I, I think sometimes you might be able to cite external circumstances for the reasons. Um, I, I, I'm not necessarily one that's going to put a lot of kind of negativity around the incident in, in Monza, which obviously the pit lane was closed. They brought Hamilton in. He got that 10 second stop go penalty, which ultimately cost him the race and teed up the race for somebody else that we'll probably speak to in a couple of minutes. Um, but you know, when, when I, when I refer back to Sahir and what happened with that, that double stack pit stop, that was, that was something that I would expect to see from Haas five years ago when they're new to the sports and their mechanics and their engineers and their pit crew are new to me. I think for any other team that that's a pretty inexcusable mistake and probably would have cost people um, their their jobs and, and ultimately their livelihood. I, I think because it's Mercedes and because they're typically such a, a reliable force, there was maybe something of a free pass. But that one was tough to stomach simply because I think at that point in the race, we were all excited and we were cheering for George Russell. Yeah. And we were we were building up this narrative, which is, hey, this driver who has never scored a championship 
point because he's driving a Williams, gets the opportunity to run in Hamilton's car and in his one and only opportunity, he wins the race. And what does that do to Hamilton's legacy? And you know what? As sports scribes, we're both getting excited because like, we can write about this and we can tweet about this and we can talk about this for weeks. It's, it's so much, it's so much great stuff. Right. And then ultimately, uh, Mercedes has that awful double stack and it cost it cost George Russell the win. Um, Bottas, I think, um, finishes, did, did Bottas finish? In the, yeah, he did finish in the points. He finished a disappointing, I think eighth, but he wasn't running a great race regardless, but, but yeah, it's just that one in particular, I think really stings Mercedes just because of the impact that it had on that race and the impact that it ultimately had on Georgia's season. Yeah, it does. I mean, the, the way that it worked out, it's secure too. Uh, it was Bottas and uh, Russell eighth and ninth. And, you know, it was funny, too, because, uh, I mean, not only did we want to see this guy win that race driving Lewis's car, but it was like, okay, maybe he's not going to win, but he's still good for a podium. And then it looked like the podium was, I was like, and then it's just like, God, you know, that this guy's been a rock star all weekend since he came in. He didn't fit into the car. He's wearing like smaller shoes and everything that, uh, that he could do. And, you know, it's just like that, you know, the typical root for the underdog kind of thing, because you go back, because he'd been close a couple of times. I mean, Vettel said after Mugello, or sorry, Mugello, that uh, that he felt bad that he took that last point away from from George, uh, because, you know, he finished 10th and, you know, he beat George to it. So, I mean, he'd been close a couple of times. And then the, the, the story kind of changed to, well, maybe he's not going to win the race. Maybe he's not going to uh, get a podium. But please, please, please let this poor guy at least score a point when he's in the best car <laughs> in the entire grid. So it, uh, it it really was unfortunate. And then I think that that, uh, that whole incident with the double stack and just how badly they botched it at, uh, at Bahrain too, really just goes to underline just uh, how much of, uh, of an art it is. And it just makes it impre- all that more impressive that uh, how Red Bull is able to pull it off. And they've done it almost on a regular basis over, not, not just uh, over years, basically. They've done it over years. And there's there's never been a hitch to it, so it, it really was uh, it was really uh, I think it really highlighted the um, the ineptitude on uh, you know the the part of Mercedes, but also really highlighted uh, you know the teams that get it right, how good it uh, and difficult it really is. But you already hinted at it, so we're going to go f- uh, into the the second half of our top ten uh, list. So number six is uh, Pierre Gasly winning at uh, Monza as uh, a result of one of these uh, moments obviously there was uh, yep. you know, that big uh, incident uh, what with uh, with Charles excuse me Charles Leclerc crashing and it was really one of those you know it was really set up a very interesting uh, you know, finish to that race just to, to run down the, uh, the the final race uh, classification you had Gasly Carlos Sainz Lance Stroll Lando Norris Valtteri Bottas uh, Danny Ricardo Lewis Hamilton Esteban Ocon Danny Kvyat and Sergio Perez uh, rounding out the, uh, the the top 10 and the thing that uh, made it really impressive is that well not only did uh, Gasly win it just uh, because the way that everything got uh, shook uh, shaken up because of the, uh, the 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 safety car is that he managed to hold off uh, Carlos Sainz because that race goes another couple of laps you know we're talking about a completely different race uh, winner because he only beat uh, Carlos to the line by 0.415 seconds and you know even Lance wasn't all that uh, far back he was only about three and a half seconds uh, behind those two 
So that really was uh, it was one of those uh, you know nice moments that 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 you get, and I kind of had uh, you know what are those uh, little question marks, little little thoughts in my head after uh, afterwards is like, are we going to be sitting here in ten or fifteen years talking about uh, this season or you know doing a, a segment or talking about where are they now? And is Pierre Gasly going to be one of these guys like Olivier Panis who won the Monaco Grand Prix in the mid-90s in a Ligier? Is this going to be the only time that, uh, that, that he ever wins a race in Formula One? Of course, he's a young guy. There's still a lot of time for him to, uh, you know, in his career in Formula One. But the big question is, where does, you know, how long will he stay with Alpha Tauri? Is there going to be a step up, uh, you know, in into a bigger team in the future? So it definitely was, it was a good moment, a feel-good moment for Pierre Gasly, but also uh, led to some uh, more interesting, deeper questions about his future. Yeah, completely. I It's funny, too, because... I had forgotten how tight that race was at the end until I went back to revisit some of the highlights. I had completely forgotten what a battle it was between Signs and, and Gasly on that, in particular that that last lap. I, and I, I thought it was uh, I thought it was pretty thrilling. And I, I also agree with you that if the race had gone um, another lap or two, especially given the fact that Signs was within DRS distance of of Gasly for almost that entire range that he probably would have caught him or at least made it much more interesting. But, you know, ultimately, I think as a storyline and a narrative for F1, like the sport needed it. It was a it was a great new story. It was the first race that Alpha Tori had won <laughs> since 2008. Incidentally, they last won at Italy, their one and only previous race win when Sebastian Vettel won with them before he made the transition over to Red Bull. It was the the first time that a French driver had won since 1996. And you just mentioned who that was in Olivier Pan like there were so many good news stories that came out of this and it's also remarkable as well that signs qualified well and i think a lot of people forget how well he qualified that weekend like he had great pace through practice and qualifying so it wasn't necessarily a surprise that given the fact that hamilton was penalized with that 10 second stop go um incident it probably wasn't a surprise that signs was in the mix he qualified third um Bottas yeah. qualified second but this was one of those race weekends where he just he vanished he choked up a number of spots at the very beginning and just disappeared into the middle of the pack and when you combine that ultimately with Hamilton's penalty it kind of opened up this opportunity for some other drivers what's really remarkable though is Gasly qualified 10th Stroll qualified 8th they both ended up with a podium but I think the real kind of game changer here was obviously and it wasn't just Hamilton that was penalized for entering the pit when it was closed. Um, Giovinazzi did as well. Um, ultimately, everyone else recognized that the pit was closed. It was just Hamilton just happened to be in a bad location at a bad time. Um, it's debatable whether he should have entered, whether he saw the signage, whether the team should have let him know, whatever. It, it created some exciting circumstances. But what really allowed Gasly to win this race was he'd managed to sneak into the pit lane for a tire change immediately before the pit lane was closed. So whereas everybody else waited and they all clumped into the pit lane immediately following the reopening, Gasly had already gone through. So he put himself in a terrific position. Uh, But I think a couple of other things to remember from this race as well is it was a terrible race. Obviously, Ferrari, um, if you remember, Vettel's tires disintegrated on the sixth lap. Mm -hmm. Uh, Leclerc's Mm -hmm. back end broke out and he had a terrible crash, which ultimately led to the red flag because they had to rebuild the integrity of that tire wall. Uh, Magnussen had that power unit failure, which ultimately led to the safety car which led to the closure of the pit lane but ultimately we got to see three young talented drivers on the podium in in Gasly and Sainz and Stroll um 
Ultimately, though, it was a bit of a turning point in the season for Stroll as well because he really struggled for the next four or five races until he got to Turkey and began to turn his season around a little bit. But ultimately, it was a great news story. And you just think about what plays in the media more if you're talking about what's good for Formula One. Have ha- had Hamilton won this race, it would have just been another procession. It would have been another typical race weekend. But Gasly wins and it's front page news all over Europe and all over the sporting world. So I think it was a good thing for the sport and it was one of the more exciting weekends for sure. And again, you have to feel for Gasly because this is a guy who lost his Red Bull seat halfway through last season, managed to score a podium with AlphaTauri at the end of the season, and then ultimately wins a race this year with Red Bull's B team. What a what an awesome story. I was so happy yeah. for, this, for yeah. that young man. Yeah, absolutely. There were a number of uh, underlying, uh, you know, uh, threads in that one that really made it, uh, like you say, uh, like a real good feel-good story for. Him. And also, you have to remember this was the point of the, uh, the the season that was a real nadir, a real low point for Red Bull themselves because Max didn't even finish that race. And this is one of those. Uh, what was it? He yeah, had like it was point. six six DNFs over the year, and uh, that yep. was this was I think. Uh, pretty much as close to where they hit rock bottom because they'd really been struggling at this point. And then again, uh, you know, you had uh, Lewis really dropping down through the, uh, you know, through the race order. Uh, Max was out of the race. Ferrari weren't in it. So the, the way that the, you know, the safety cards, the red car or the red flag really set everything up is that it really reshaped the running order, really reshaped, uh, you know, the grid and it really set up, uh, you know, a really exciting finish. So it really the, was. The one other thing that's worth mentioning as well, and, and I completely, and I, may have done this um, subconsciously, but Lance Stroll was in a position to win this race after that restart. And he went hot into, I think, the second or third corner after the restart, lost a ton of positions, had to make up a ton of ground. So, you know, we, we look back and like, hey, he had a podium. He was in a position to win this race and he choked it up because he made a mistake and he yep. went deep into a corner because he was late on the brakes and locked up the tires. Like, ultimately, it's it's very fortunate that he had a podium, but he was in a position to win this race. And we probably don't talk about that enough um, because ultimately the ghastly story story was a great story, but I, I think it's probably worth commenting that, hey, Lance was in a position to win this race as well, and a simple yeah. mistake cost him that uh, that yeah. opportunity. Yeah, he did say so afterwards, and it was just one of those things that uh, kind of got lost in the, uh, you know, the, the, the rest of the babble and all the other chatter going on after that, <laughs> uh, that race. All right, uh, well, we're going to take uh, one final break here on the show tonight, and we're going to come back and we're going to count down, uh, well, 7, 8, 9, and 10. So don't go away, and you want to stick around for those, and we'll be back to do so in just a moment. All right, well, welcome back to the show. Mark and Mark here, counting down our top 10 moments of the 2020 Formula One season. Uh, we've been through one to six, so uh, we're going to pick it up with uh, number seven, and that is Roman Grosjean's huge crash in uh, in Bahrain uh, towards the end of the season, third uh, race uh, from the end of the year. And uh, again, uh, the the discussion, I think, from from the halo, even though un- as unsightly as it is, and as much a uh, discussion as that to provoked when it was first introduced, the, the, the discussion regarding the relevancy of whether it is or is not a game changer when it comes to safety, I think that was uh, put to rest a while ago. I think that just uh, underlines the entire discussion because, I mean, he walked away from a crash that uh, he probably should not have walked away from. And uh, more to the point is that he walked away from a crash that, uh, you know, his head probably should not have been still attached to his body by, by the time the car came to a stop, to put it, you know, in a quite a blunt and graphic uh, kind of manner, because that was, it was just horrifying to watch. It was absolutely 
you know, and, and I, I still think back to that race and we we're watching the race and we have this long shot of the straight with the cars coming towards you and you can see the cars coming down the straight. You can see Grosjean leave the track and you can see the fireball. So yeah. we actually saw that live and, and there was no way that the TV broadcasters could have done anything about that. So we knew something of significance had happened and you don't see explosions like that in modern formula one, maybe 20 or 30 or 40 years ago when the fuel cell was in a different place and they carried more fuel and there was less reliance on an electrical component, but you just don't see that. And, and I just, and you and I talked so much about this. It was, it was very troubling to continue watching that race, not knowing what was happening. Um, and great job to the producers and to the commentators for kind of alleviating some of our fears and distracting us a little bit but ultimately when we got that cut of Grosjean walking away it was one of those moments where okay thank goodness he's okay but I don't think any of us realized how much danger he had been in Mm -hmm. until subsequent to the race when we began to see some more of the footage and when we began to see the wreckage of the car so we saw the flames we saw the fireball and we saw him leaving the scene but I don't think it was really until after the race at least in my case it wasn't until subsequent to the completion of the race that I began seeing the footage and dissecting the footage and seeing the gifts um, and seeing the photos of the wreckage of the car and seeing that the barriers that had been separated and punctured apart by the halo itself that i began to realize like oh my god because during the race we we knew something had happened we knew it was bad but it wasn't really until subsequent to the race that we could begin to dissect it and understand what had happened how lucky he was and how fortunate it is that the fia and formula one had instituted the halo because to your point like we're not just saying hey you know what we're being dramatic and we're trying to make a point and we're incorporating a whole bunch of hyperbole he would have been dead like there's no question whatsoever he escaped that accident that accident that crash purely because of the existence of the halo and to this day it's just it's just remarkable that that crash happened um and it's remarkable that he was able to walk away but all the credit in the world to the FIA and Formula 1 for instituting some safety hardware that enabled that to happen if you know what i mean yeah you know it is uh it all really comes about, uh, you know, I was thinking about it uh, too, was the, uh, you know, that the halo was almost destined after Jules Bianchi's crash at uh, Suzuka a number of years ago. What was that? 2014, 2015, you know, I mean, it's 2014. It's 2014. And, you know, when you look at the two um, accidents, I mean, the, the way that, you know, poor old Jules, like the, the, like the accident itself almost happened in slow motion, the way that he slipped off the, 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 the track at Suzuka under very, very treacherous and slippery circumstances and slid into this, you know, the, um, this tractor or whatever it was that was, the I can't remember, yeah, I can't remember whose car that they were actually, cause they were under a virtual safety car at the time. And then exactly. just, it was sort of a slow motion accident and his, his eventual demise. I mean, that was a slow motion. It was just a horrible thing. And I mean, you almost expected to see Jules get out of the car and walk away from that one, and and yeah. he didn't. And then you know you you flip that around to Grosjean's accident, which you know there there were so many things going on. You had the fire, you had the way that he impacted the barrier, the way that the car came to a rest that you would not expect somebody to get out of a, you know, a car in that situation and then only have something, you know, as minor as burns onto his hand. Not that th- those are minor, but, uh, you know, all things considering 
was really uh, quite uh, re- remarkable. So that, uh, you know, the funny thing is too, and I know that video games are no real indication of uh, reality, but uh, I was playing the F1 video game over the uh, the, the holiday break here. And I was uh, racing at uh, Bahrain and I, I find that the graphics model very well. And it, it's very interesting when you go around, you go from start, finish, you go into that, uh, that, that the right-hander, the left-hander and that little dog leg back to the right before you go down that, uh, that straightaway. And in the, the, the Codemasters has done a very good job. That little barrier where that, uh, that little access road uh, that uh, runs on the inside of the track, that Grosjean hit, that's actually modeled. You can actually see like wow. little stewards and whatnot standing there. And it does not stand out significantly, uh, you know, from the, the the rest of the scenery. And I haven't been able to go back and find like an in-car camera from like one of the replays. Um, you know, I, I've gone back and I, I didn't really notice it on uh, Kvyat's as much because, you know, you got uh, Roma hitting his uh, left front uh, wheel and then skidding across. So it's a little bit of, uh, obscured, but... It really was the one scenario that I don't think that they ever planned for when they designed it. But, you know, horrible situation, obviously. And uh, thank goodness that he walked away. And, you know, sadly, that was the his final thing that he'll be probably remembered for in Formula One. Because at the age he's at now and the, the fact that he's out at Haas, I don't think we're going to see Roman back in, in, in Formula One in the in the future anyways uh moving on to number eight and this is a big one but uh, we'll, we'll try and keep it to uh, a couple of minutes here as best we can and that is the continued struggle of uh, the scuderia uh, ferrari and uh, just all the problems that uh, that they continue to have i mean uh just uh, i mean turkey was their 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 best race of the uh, the entire year sixth in the world championship in 2020 131 points compared that to 573 for Mercedes. I mean, even uh, look at where Red Bull finished up with 319 points. I mean, in the last uh, number of years, you would have expected uh, you know Mercedes, Ferrari, and Red Bull. So you would uh, you know Ferrari had been on form like they've been up till uh, the end of 2018. You would have them expected to see them somewhere in between. Mercedes and Red Bull. Obviously, I don't think uh, if uh, Ferrari was on form, that 573 at Mercedes would have been as uh, as big, and they probably would have taken points away from both the Mercedes and, and Red Bull. But uh, I, again, we're going to go back and, and rehash uh, what we talked about a number of times uh, throughout the year. Mark was the uh, you know the secret decision that came out uh, about this time last year about uh, you know the legality of their uh, you know the power unit and it, it was reflected not just in the works team but also the customer teams just how underpowered that uh, that that uh, that engine was this year and you know that that old saying where there's smoke there's fire if it walks like a duck and it talks like a duck you know use use <laughs> any um, you know any of the one of those sayings you want i mean there was something obviously uh, you know that wasn't kosher about that power unit and and max back in 2019 saying that hey these guys are just straight up cheating more or less is what he said at the time and uh, they've they've struggled ever since and they just um, are a shadow of their former selves and considering we're going into this weird kind of in-between year where we're having the current formula extended another year that uh, what with the limited uh opportunities and uh you know possibilities for development on the current cars and power units that we might see some improvements on uh you know the uh, the, the car going into next year but honestly i think if you're a ferrari fan that uh, you you're probably putting more hope in 2022 
uh, before, you know, as, as, as more of a realistic turning point in, in revival of fortunes and race wins, podiums, and that sort of thing. Yeah, what's really remarkable about, about this team as well is even if you flash back to 2019 when they were still very competitive for reasons that we obviously discovered later were fairly nefarious, even when they were competitive or at least they were putting competitive cars on the grid, this team was just surrounded by noise and the cloud regarding the team orders and the relationship between Leclerc and Vettel, right? You know, Vettel's first four or five years with Ferrari, he was clearly the number one driver. He had the opportunity to win a couple of championships. Um, He came up short, obviously, in 17. He came up short in 18, which was probably the year he probably should have won. And then ultimately, Raikkonen was moved to, uh, um, I, I guess... Uh, Alfa Romeo. I, I always, I always struggle with that one. I still want to call it Sauber, but obviously I he know. made the move to yep. Alfa Romeo. Um, and then all of a sudden, Vettel was in a position in 2019 where he was paired with a driver who had the capability to win on any given race weekend. So even though the team was competitive on the track in 2019, there was still a lot of noise surrounding that team. And then you obviously go to your point into the offseason last year, and there's this kind of secretive agreement between the FIA and Formula One. Um, It threw F1 Twitter and Reddit into a fury because everyone wanted to understand, and we didn't understand why the penalty wasn't greater, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But ultimately, Ferrari is penalized because they're forced to feel the power unit during the season which is woefully uncompetitive. Um, and then you kind of combine that as well with some of the the personnel decisions around this team, right? Like, I don't know that there was a kind of a foregone conclusion or that it was a foregone conclusion that this team was interested in re-upping Vettel. I mean, ultimately, he's an older driver. He's not a paid driver. He t- probably doesn't bring a ton of sponsorship to the team at this point. There's probably not a lot of value in Ferrari retaining his services, but ultimately... The way that that situation played out in the forum of public opinion and how his departure kind of broke in the media wasn't necessarily a a positive look on Ferrari. And Mm -hmm. as it turns out, this is a team that long before it was announced to the public that he wasn't going to retain his seat, um, had already gone to Carlos Sainz and kind of had a handshake agreement that he was going to join uh, the Scuderia for the following season. And then it was kind of interesting as well that... All of a sudden, Vettel, who's never been a disliked driver, but because he doesn't have a strong personality and he's not a Hamilton, and he's not, he's by no means polarizing, but he's never been somebody that has kind of um, the type of following that a Max Verstappen would have or that a um, even a Lewis Hamilton would have at certain races. All of a sudden, there seemed to be this tide change and all of a sudden there was this massive wave of sympathy for Sebastian Vettel Mm. and that Ferrari's done him wrong and he deserves better than this and he deserves a seat for next season and ultimately you know he did get a seat and it took a long time to play out but ultimately just as just as ugly as his departure was from Ferrari it required an ugly departure of Sergio Perez from racing point to get him that seat. But yeah, overall, the season was a mess. It was a mess from a mechanical perspective and a power unit perspective. Um, obviously, I think there was pretty significant damage done to the relationship with Haas and Alfa Romeo. And I've read in a couple of places that Ferrari is looking to make that relationship right via some fairly significant financial compensation packages to those teams. And I think we've spoken as well about the fact that Haas is going to be more closely integrated into the Ferrari operations in Italy to give them better access to Ferrari resources, et cetera, et cetera. Um, But ultimately, the season was a disaster, both on the track and and ultimately off the track. And to your point, their best finish of the year was a 3-4 in Turkey, and it was Vettel's only podium. 
So, so it was a, it was obviously a tough year. And to your point as well, you know, the driver lineups obviously settled for next year. You're going to see Carlos signs and you're ultimately going to see Charles Leclerc and the way they've invested in Charles Leclerc in terms of his contract and the financial commitment. He's obviously their, their long-term project. He is obviously the individual that they see building their team around. But I think just as you and I talked about a couple of weeks ago as well, I don't know that the Carlos signs situation is necessarily long-term. If, if Mick Schumacher can show any signs of competitiveness in that woefully terrible Haas car next year, I don't think they're going to wait to bring him because I think the marketing opportunities that he brings to this team would be absolutely unparalleled in Formula One. And I think it's absolutely in their interest to get him onto that team if he's even 85% of the driver that Carlos Sainz is. So yeah, I think Ferrari had a, a terrible season. I don't know that their results are going to be any better next year, which is good news if you're McLaren or if you're Racing Point Aston Martin, because it means there's going to be tons of points available on any given race weekend. So yeah, terrible season for, for Ferrari. And I don't necessarily see, at least mechanically, it getting a whole lot better in 2021. Absolutely. And I have absolutely nothing further to add. I think you summed it up nicely. I mean, I do have a lot to say about uh, Ferrari, but <laughs> since this is just a top 10 show, I don't want to like open up that can of, can of worms. So we'll just uh, go right on to number nine. And this is a big one. Um, that's the withdrawal from uh, wow. Formula One of Honda out at the end of uh, 2021. Uh, obviously, they're kind of be throwing everything, including the kitchen sink into it uh, for 2021 to help uh, Red Bull uh, win uh, the that the championship Red Bull themselves have uh, tried to stack the odds in their favor with their arguably strongest driver lineup that they've had since 2018 when it was uh, Verstappen and Danny Ricardo. This year, they're going to be going in with uh, Max Verstappen and uh, Sergio Perez. And I think it's pretty really interesting uh, to, to see what Checo is going to be able to do in a competitive car like the Renault. I'm uh, sorry, the Renault, I've misspoken. The, the, the Red Bull, <laughs> pardon me. Um, and see what he can do in that car. But uh, it, it, it's really going to be interesting. And I guess the big question is, is A, is how good of a car are they going to be able to design and build? You're going to think it's going to be pretty good considering this is a design team that is led by Adrian Newey and his record in Formula One and motorsports speaks for itself, bar none. And then also the amount of power that they're going to get out of this Honda power unit for next year. And then I get an interesting side story to this is, uh, are Red Bull going to be able to take over Honda's engine uh, department and become a true manufacturer in their own right going into 2022? Yeah, we talked about this a couple of weeks ago, and I think there's every reason to think that Red Bull will be equally, if not more competitive in, in 2021. You, you have to consider a couple of things. One is they had a lot of bad luck in 2020, despite the fact that they finished second in the championship. Obviously, Alexander Albon underperformed relative to what anyone in that car should have been able to do, and that their top driver, Max Verstappen, um, had five retirements. And in fact, it's remarkable there was only one race last season where Max wasn't either on the podium or retired and he finished sixth. I mean, ultimately, if they can convert some of those retirements into podiums or points finishes, and ultimately they can replace Alexander Alpon with a more competitive driver, I think they're going to be in a really good position. And mm -hmm. you know what? We, we talk about the fact that Mercedes made some mistakes last year. It really didn't contribute to a really significant deficit in points accumulation. So I, I have to believe that Mercedes will probably cough up some points next year. They're going to have some retirements. They're going to have some 
DNFs. Ultimately, I can't imagine them being as reliable over the course of a 20-plus race campaign as they were over this shortened season. And I think when you pair this team with Sergio Perez, I have every reason to think they're going to be better. Now, that said, I I don't think for a second they're going to compete for a Constructors' Championship, but I think they're going to put more pressure on Mercedes in 2021 than they did in this season. Now, to your earlier point as well, I, I am a little bit saddened by the decision of Honda to leave the sport, right? Like, this is the second time now in 12 years that they've left Formula One. They they walked away from the sport in 2008 at the height of the global financial crisis, and they ultimately sold the team on to Ross Braun and his consortium at a significant discount. He was obviously able to then partner that car with a Mercedes engine. They became Mercedes. The rest is history. They rejoined the sport in 2015 in, in a shock move um, to supply McLaren with power units. It's believed that to date, they've spent more than a billion dollars um, <laughs> in, in their investments into that engine IP and that engine development. And really, until they got to Red Bull, they really hadn't been able to convert any of that money into podiums. And now, all of a sudden, where they are achieving podiums and achieving race wins, I mean, let's not forget that Max finished the season on a high with a race win in Abu Dhabi. They're walking away from the sport. And I think ultimately, there's a lot of reasons for it. I think the gut reaction from a lot of analysts is that, hey, this is a decision that's being driven by the COVID situation and that it's not necessarily the right time to be investing in what is really a vanity project. When you're building power units, but you're not actually a works team, it's more of a vanity project than it is anything. And if you look at Honda's long-term ambitions, obviously, this is a company that wants to be carbon neutral by 2050. Um, They want two-thirds of their passenger car sales to be electric by 2030. Spending hundreds of millions of dollars designing a hybrid power unit for Formula One cars when that's not necessarily kind of that trickle-down experience to your road cars, it doesn't really make sense. Um, That said, and we talked about this before as well, it was by all accounts a very, very tight decision at Formula or at Honda HQ in, in Tokyo as to whether to continue this project or not. There was a thought at one point that, hey, maybe they would re-up through 2022 or 2023, but ultimately they made the decision to back out at 2021. And then to your earlier point, it leaves Red Bull now in this very precarious situation where they, at this moment, have no engine supplier beyond 2021. And ultimately... I don't know who they would go to anyways, because it's not going to be Mercedes because that relationship simply doesn't exist. Yeah. It's never going to be Ferrari. You know what? Alpha Tori had, had, had tried a Ferrari power unit before, but ultimately I don't think they want that power unit knowing where it is from a competitive standpoint. Um, can they go back to Renault? Probably not. You've got to think those bridges are burned forever. Um, and then ultimately with the resources that this team has, and you spoke to a couple of minutes ago, I think internally what they want to be able to do is buy that Honda IP and simply continue developing that engine based on all of the resources and the factory and the production tools that they currently have. So I think that's their ambition. If that's not possible, I do not know where that leaves Red Bull <laughs> heading into 2022. Holy yeah, moly. It is, um, like you say, it's a very, very precarious, uh, you know, thin line that they're walking at the moment. So they really are hedging all their bets uh, to, uh, to to sort something out with Honda. Who knows where that's going to go? Uh, you know wh- whether or not there's going to be some announcement made of that in uh, the, the the coming weeks and months. I mean, I think Abitable did publicly say that there would be a possibility. Uh, you know, to perhaps resupply uh, Red Bull with Renault power. But yeah. I don't know if that was just maybe a public statement more of a, yeah, well, I, you know, I'm not going to be a dick in public. I'm just going to say, totally. that, you know, so like you say, I mean, th- those bridges may be burned, but uh, certainly it's going to be a very, very fascinating situation to watch uh, next year, both on and off the track for Red Bull. 
And here we are. We've got nine down, one to go, and the last one for our top 10 moments of uh, 2020 was actually not on the track, but off of it. And that was the We Race as One um, campaign that kicked off in Formula One. Mark, you want to speak to this one first? Yeah, I, I will. And, and you know what? Let's flash back a little bit. So the season began on July 5th. And when you consider the timing, we were... We were coming out of that initial peak wave of COVID, and I think things were dying down. Western Europe was really getting a handle on the situation. But I think at that point, from a society perspective and culturally, I, I think there was a really great appreciation for our essential workers and frontline workers and medical workers. But at the same time, there was this global kind of conversation about social equality. And it really had been kickstarted in the US based on some circumstances there, some things that had happened. Um, and US athletes and US celebrities um, and many US politicians had really kind of kickstarted this social equality movement. And on June 22nd, um, Formula One, um, led obviously by the Liberty Group, um, kicked off its we hashtag we race as one initiative. And it kind of detailed or kind of broke it out into a couple of different buckets. And, you know, it just kind of as a refresher here, this is their program. So hashtag we race as one, we race to compete, we race for the exhilaration, we race because it's in our blood, but to change our sport for the better and change the world for good and have to race for something bigger, for frontline workers, for inclusion and equality, for a more sustainable future, we race as one. And, you know, for the first couple of races, um, they did something. I mean, ultimately, Formula One, Liberty, the FIA, they contributed a little bit of money, not a lot, but they, they contributed a little bit of money towards um, social equality movements and, and opportunities at the first couple of races. And these were haphazard, poorly organized, largely disorganized um experiences at the beginning or the end of the races where the drivers got together and they just kind of embraced social equality. And it was, it was a bit of a miss and it was very, very highly, Awkward. highly criticized and Hamilton. And I don't know if you remember this, but Hamilton said, and, and I quote, he said, following the initial kickoff of we races one. And I think there was a lot of kind of hope <clears throat> that this could be something bigger, but Hamilton himself said, and I quote, um, F1 was not doing enough. Um, the campaign lacked leadership and they had presented a campaign that required better coordination. Um, so he was very, very critical. And, you know, I, I lean into Hamilton here and, and I respect his opinion because ultimately you talk about a lot of these F1 drivers. For starters, they're white. A lot of them come from privileged backgrounds. A lot of them come from Western Europe. So a lot of the things that F1's We Races One was designed to kind of rally around and improve are things and experiences that none of them would ever have encountered in their daily lives where Hamilton, you know, growing up middle class, growing up in a less affluent city in the UK, having faced a lot of these challenges, he's probably better to speak to this. So ultimately he was disappointed um, in the execution of this. And then you, you talk as well, just about some of the bigger decisions that formula one had made during the season. This was the season that they really leaned into their race relationship with Aramco, which is of course the state owned oil mm -hmm. company from the kingdom of Saudi Arabia, you lead into the fact that they are now going to race in Saudi Arabia, and it looks like it's a 10-year deal that's going to kick off in Jeddah at the end of next season. You look at the fact that the Mazepan situation happens at the end of 2020, and ultimately the FIA and Formula One are content to let Haas ultimately kind of be the disciplinarian in that case, if there was any discipline at all. Like, you know, they, they come forward with this big marketing campaign and it promised a lot. But I don't know that we necessarily saw anything come of it. So it was neat that they were able to put the stickers on the car, put the digital banners on the TV program. But ultimately, I, I don't know if there was anything of substance here. And I really defer to Hamilton. And, and Hamilton, I think, has been highly suspect and, and highly critical of the, the campaign itself. 
Yeah. <clears throat> well, you know, it's it was it always came across as slightly disorganized, slightly clumsy, slightly awkward, as if the, the, yes, the people all of that those were things. trying to do it. It seemed well-intentioned, but it seemed it was being implemented by people that were trying to do the right thing, but obviously didn't know enough about the the, the, the situations they were trying to address to actually implement it uh, properly. So yeah, it always kind of had this disjointed, um, you know, feel about it. But then also, you know, like, you know, further to your points about like, you know, the deal with Aramco and then the Saudi, uh, you know, Grand Prix thing coming up for next year and the Mazepin situation, you know, there, there's so many things conflicting here. It yeah. just really kind of muddies the message. It's just like, okay, well, where really are the priorities? Where, you know, like where, you know, how much of this is just lip service? How much of this is serious? And, you know, I, I completely, you know, understand. Well, I, I can't completely understand where Lewis is coming from, but to a, a very, you know, minimal amount, I can understand why he might be critical, why he might be frustrated, and why he feels the need that that uh, you know somebody else needs to take a you know you know go on point and uh, you know provide uh, leadership and direction to this uh, initiative because it it really needs a, a good kick in uh, the the right direction to to get it going. And I, I really think it comes down to the fact that obviously, as most big private companies are, um, you have a marketing team and you have a business operations team and you have a sales team. And, and I think ultimately the business team, the business arm of the Liberty Group is like, you need to go out and generate revenue. Like we are hemorrhaging cash during the COVID situation. Yep. And they say, well, you know, Aramco is a great sponsor and they're going to be reliable and they're putting up a ton of cash and we need that cash. And likewise, you know what? The race organizer in Jetta and ultimately Riyadh, where they're going to build a purpose purpose built racetrack, they're going to give us $50 million a year to, to host a race. So like the, the business and the business operations team, they're doing what they're being tasked to do by Liberty, which is generate revenue and bring aboard sponsors. And yet the marketing team, they're being tasked with creating a more inclusive sport, which is more it's friendly to a broader demographic and is designed to bring in new fans and, and female fans and fans of uh, other countries. Like, so they're both doing their things. They're just completely incompatible with each other. You know what I mean? Yeah. So like, I feel like they're both executing, but there's no kind of coordination within the the organization itself. Yeah, exactly. They're both executing and doing what they're tasked to do, but (laughs) yeah, there, there's no common, you know, there's very minimal overlap in, in the middle. Exactly. Anyways, I, I think we've uh, pretty well covered it. Uh, well, we haven't. We could have uh, gone in depth to any one of those uh, ten points that we went uh, down. But uh, there you go. That's uh, I, I think as much justice as we can do in uh, the, the time that we had this afternoon. So that's it. If you guys uh, agree or disagree, you want to add in your own uh, moments, uh, by all means do so. Hit us up on Twitter at ScuderiaF1Pod or email us at uh, ScuderiaF1Pod at gmail.com. Leave a comment in the comment sections below if you're uh, watching on YouTube. Uh, that's uh, all appreciated. We love all the feedback uh, that we get. We got some uh, comments. We got some emails, some tweets over the holiday period, and we'll uh, address those once we get back to our regular um, show later this week and over the weeks and months to come. So keep them coming. We love it. Uh, we love uh, interacting and talking with you guys. And uh, that's it. That's all I got. Unless you've got anything else, Mark. I think no, uh, we're all good to I'm, go. I'm good to go. Happy New Year, everybody. We uh, we can't wait for a, a crazy 2021 calendar. We'll speak to everybody soon. Absolutely. Thanks, guys. Take care. And we'll talk to you again very, very soon. Bye for now.